Welcome, everybody. We now have another man-to-man -man interview here, and I am extremely excited to be uh, here with Christopher West. Christopher, thank you for being here, my friend. Mark, it's a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Awesome. Well, you know, your work has really transformed my life. Like for all of you guys who don't know Christopher, he is very, he's a world renowned on the teachings of theology of the body, which is, what's the best way to summarize that? It's like kind of like Catholic teaching around sexuality in a nutshell. That would be, a, that would be, if I can put it <laughs> frankly, Mark, that would be a bland way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give me the spicy way to say it. The spicy way to say it is that our bodies as men and women, but we're talking men here. So let's, can we zoom right in here let's do it. and just focus on the word testicles for a moment. I'm, I'm jumping right in. <laughs> I love it. Do you know where we get the word testicles, Mark? Uh, I do not. Testicles shares the same root as words like testify, testimony, testament, right? If you're a person of faith, you know that the Bible is made up of the old and the new testament hmm. what is the basic message of the bible it's the proclamation of the fatherhood of god well guess what your body and my body is the same proclamation <laughs> our bodies are meant to testify to the eternal fatherhood of god that way well that's what makes our bodies not only biological but theological Theology of the body. Our bodies tell an amazing story, a divine story. That's that's theology of the body in a nutshell, in a in a kind of uh, more spicy way. <laughs> I love that, uh, which is, and it's crazy that just that way of putting it uh, automatically puts you in hot water with our culture. Like back uh, when, yes. back when I first learned this stuff was actually in high school. I went to a Catholic high school and. Um, you know, I had a, a very, you know, philosophically minded priest who kind of introduced this stuff. It was kind of more of a talk about, you know, here's what you're allowed to do sexually and here's what you're not allowed to do sexually. And I'm like, okay, um, you know, I get that. I thought it was, you know, pretty impressively put together in terms of like the the argumentation and everything like that. Um, but it wasn't I was, a big I was deal. Right with you, Mark. I, my upbringing was very similar. I call it uh, being raised on the starvation diet gospel. Right. We yes. we all have this hunger. We all have this yearning, this ache, this cry in our bones for for something. And and I learned from this teaching called Theology of the Body, which comes from a Polish guy that probably many of your audience has heard of, <laughs> named Pope John Paul II. And this Polish guy who just happened to be the Pope was the first to tell me that that ache in my bones had a name. And to my surprise, he called it eros hmm. and you know in english we get the word erotic from that greek word eros but in my mind when i was first learning this theology of the body i was this is in the early 90s and i was 24 i guess when i found this and to in my mind the word erotic was synonymous with the with, with, with the word pornographic right right the erotic realm and the pornographic realm were the same thing because it was the pornographic realm that had formed and shaped my thinking around these themes. And this crazy Polish Pope was telling me, no, 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 no. You're confusing the Greek word eros with the Greek word porneia. Mm. And he said, no, eros is the upward thrust of the human spirit 
towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. Mm. This was this was a revolution for me. Uh, I, I came to discover through this teaching that Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a feast, uh, an infinite feast of life-giving love that that corresponds to the deepest cry of my heart. But if you don't know that, then then the whole proposal of faith just sounds like your desires are bad. You need to repress all that, but follow all these rules and you'll be a good upstanding citizen. Well, that's why I became not knowing yet about this feast that I was invited to. In my teenage years, I became a quick convert to what I call the fast food gospel, Mm -hmm. which is the secular approach here. And it's a promise of immediate gratification for those erotic longings. And I would imagine you would agree with me, Mark, if the only two choices are starvation or fast food, I'm going for the chicken nuggets because I'm hungry. Absolutely. And, and that's that's what, you know, my whole journey was about, like with it, because uh, like I had this sexual desire growing up, you know, like any, you know, 14 year old boy. It's like, whoo, it's like this rocket yep. fuel inside of me. Yep. And you know, my upbringing didn't tell me what to do with it. It's like, oh, yeah, you can do something with that in like maybe 10 years, 15 years, you know, you can get married and then you can do it. But until then, uh, go do some push-ups. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's when I was like, okay, clearly this doesn't work. Actually, uh, one time, I think it was a sophomore in high school, I was uh, fasting from, you know, I I gave up porn and masturbation. I was like 15 years old and I just started like feeling horrible, like just irritable, angry, moody. And then I relapsed and I felt a million times better, like so much better. I actually started just cracking up and I was like, okay, these people have no idea what they're talking about. They're insane. Fast forward several years later, I finally quit pornography after realizing that I was addicted and I was going through withdrawal. You know, that's not necessarily what my body needed. It was just that I had already been so conditioned uh, on this fast food diet, you know, of sexual stimulation that, you know, I was uh, I was hooked already, you know, before I even knew what the heck was happening. And so a lot of guys in my generation, we got pulled into porn uh, with zero supervision. It was like, you know, no one knew what the Internet was really about yet. And then, you know, it's only gotten worse today. So, Mark, I- my, my experience was similar. I remember, you know, I, I dove into the fast food pretty heavily as a teenager because I was hungry. Sure. And the starvation approach was not working for me. And the chicken nuggets taste really good going down. <laughs> they do. But there is this addictive thing to it, right? The grease and the sodium gets in your system, and then you start to feel pretty rough. And, and I remember I was, I think I was 18 years old when I told my girlfriend, my my Catholic conscience was kind of kicking in, mm-hmm. and and I knew I knew something was off. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was off. And I told my girlfriend during at the start of Lent one year, I said, "Let's give up sex for Lent." And and she agreed. Uh, and uh, guess how long I lasted? I would say three days. Yeah. Yeah. Takes one to know one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I probably would have been able to pull. Yeah. Yeah. Three. I lasted three days. And and that's when I realized I was not free. I was in chains because I couldn't say no to my sexual desires. And I realized if you can't say no, if you can't control your sexual desires, 
then you end up controlling other people to gratify them. Because I found myself trying to manipulate my girlfriend to give me what I couldn't say no to. Right. And I realized I was a manipulator. I was a professional user hmm. because I couldn't say no to my urge to merge. And, and that's not freedom. Long story short, I came to learn in a long search that sexual freedom is not the liberty to indulge my compulsions. It's liberation from the compulsion to indulge. Hmm. Only at this point are we truly free. Right? Is the alcoholic who can't say no to the bottle, is he free or is he in chains? Right. And this is complete like contrast to what society's saying is sexual freedom, right? What they're yeah. really selling is complete sexual slavery where it's like if you any repressed sexual urge you have is actually like a poison being, you know, shoved into your body. And on some level, I would agree that the way in which you manage that energy really matters. Like if it's just yeah. like in this sort of self-loathing like this is bad, get down there sort of thing. Yeah. It's 100% going to have negative ramifications. Correct, correct. So what's the alternative? Yeah. The alternative, <clears throat> I want to go back to that rocket fuel analogy that you used a few minutes ago. You said you're 14 years old. And you're like, I have this rocket fuel in me. Yeah. I use this image all the time. I like to say. I got it from that, you. <laughs> oh, you did? Well, okay. Yeah. I, Fill These Hearts like changed my life when I read that book. Um, oh, that's, that's that awesome. Was, that one, that was, that's anyone out there who's like trying to understand like you know, the ideas around like this transmutation of transmutation of Eros. That book is truly incredible for people who are just like, just, I was just dying in this longing when, you know, anyway, I interrupt you. Go, keep going. That's all right. Well, let me, let me come at it with a story. I think stories are helpful. Okay. And this, this story was actually told to me by one of my professors in graduate school. And, and, the essence of it is what he told me, but I, I, I'm changing a few of the details. So here's here's how I tell the story. There was a young couple madly in love, and it was a beautiful starlit night. They got in their car looking for a quiet place, a private place out in the country where they could put out a blanket and and indulge their passions in wild delights. They found this knoll, grassy hill, pulled the car over, grabbed a blanket, headed out. Little did they know they were on the property of a country parish and an old Catholic Monsignor heard a little commotion, looked out his rectory window and saw these young lovers headed over a hill with a blanket. So he decided he would go for a prayer walk. <laughs> and he, he approaches this couple who are at this point engaged in some passionate lip lock and standing over top of them, he looks down and he says, and they're, they're frightened, they're looking up, all staring into a Roman collar, and they're expecting that they're going to be roundly scolded and condemned. But instead, the wise old Monsignor asks this young couple a question. He says, tell me, what does what you're doing here have to do with the stars? And he turned around and walked back to the rectory, just leaving the young lovers to ponder that question. This story, since I first heard it like 25 years ago, 
has haunted me. Hmm. Like I've come back to it over and over and over again. And, and the stars here are a symbol of transcendence, a symbol of the beyond, a symbol of what the human heart is really yearning for, some kind of infinity, some kind of infinite joy, some kind of, of happiness that doesn't fade, that doesn't end. And the stars are a symbol of that eternity, if you will. So the question here becomes, does sexual desire, does sexual passion, does sexual longing have anything to do with transcendence, with the eternal, with the infinite? And in my journey, I have come to, to discover that it has everything to do with that. In fact, if I were to put it this way, I would say God gave us sexual desire to be like the fuel of a rocket that has the power to launch us to the stars. But it's not so simple because we live in a broken world. And in this broken world, what's broken is something deep inside our hearts. It's not just, oh, that's effed up or that's effed up. No, there's something effed up in me. There's something messed up in me. And to go with this analogy, I'm proposing that our rocket engines are inverted. This is why we go out in the world, we're looking for happiness, we're looking for joy, we're looking for a good time, we're looking for love, but so often it backfires on us. And so we have to find a way, to go along with this little metaphor, we have to find a way to redirect the rocket engines to the stars. And in as much as our rocket engines are aimed at the stars, in as much as sexual desire has set its target on the transcendent, well, then we can launch without backfiring. And all that power and energy has a place to go. It has a destiny. It has a home. It has a... Well, let's look at that word well, destiny. Destiny is an archer's term. It means to aim at, right? Wherever you aim your desires, that's where you're going to go. And if you're aiming your desire at anything less than infinite joy, well, you're going to end up with something less than infinite joy. And Mark, if I'm honest with myself, if I really do an honest inventory of what I feel going on inside here, I'm looking for a love, I'm looking for a joy, I'm looking for a happiness, I'm looking for a beauty that doesn't fade, that doesn't pass away. I'm looking for even a love that survives death. And, and here's, I'm, I'm going to point to my favorite book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, the great erotic love poetry of the Bible. And it's fascinating here that saint after saint after saint in the Christian tradition has turned to this erotic love poetry in the Bible to give them a language to describe their yearning for the infinite, for the eternal. And in that erotic love poetry called the Song of Songs, the lovers cry out for a love that is stronger than death. And one of my favorite Christian writers, his name's Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI, he says that this cry of erotic love for a, a love that's stronger than death, he says it brings us to the essential question and problem of human existence in the world. 
the heart, erotic desire cries for some kind of eternity. But we run up against the reality of this passing world. And here I'm, I'm thinking of, of Hugh Hefner, who in his 80s was still surrounding himself with bleach blonde 25-year-old silicone-injected women. What is that? What is that picture of an 86-year-old man surrounded by blonde bimbos? I look at that and I say, that's a man who's scared shitless of death. Hmm. He is scared shitless of the fact that beauty fades, that women get old, that he gets old and dies. And it's kind of, in a negative sense, it's a yearning for a love that is stronger than death, but he's aiming it in the wrong direction because he's never learning to love, right? You get old, you get wrinkles, your boobs start to sag. Well, I don't love you anymore. I'm going to go backwards to a 25-year-old bimbo. Well, guess what? He keeps getting older and older, and he's going backwards to 25-year-old women with silicone-injected breasts. Uh, what the hell is that? It's the fear of death. Erotic desire, if we're honest, and I, I know I'm digging deep here, but if we're honest, erotic desire will confront us head-on with our fear of death. And the Christian proposal is precisely this. The Christian proposal is that there is, it's not just a dream when eros, when erotic longing cries out for a love stronger than death. The Christian proposal is it's not just a dream. If there was a man who lived through death, but came out the other side, bodily came out the other side risen from the dead if that's real then there is an answer to the cry of eros for a love that is stronger than death you know when i was learning these things mark that christianity is is not this repressive fearful approach to erotic desire that it's made out to be but it actually supplies the only adequate answer to the shape of my erotic longing I was like, sign me up, sign me up. I want that. I long for that. I need that. And the thing is, like, I love that. Like, everything you said, like, to me, like, intellectually, it's incredibly beautiful. It moves me. And, like, that's what's, in many ways, kept me Catholic, okay? And I think that even if you're not Catholic, like, this this imagery, this framework, I think, still works. It's still useful. But what I'm obsessed with is the practicality, right? Like, yeah. How do you actually do it? So let me like for me, the question of like, okay, I have sexual desire. You know, I, I feel it from my wife. It feels like a very clear yeah. one thing. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, how do I actually redirect that? Like at first it's like, all right, I'm going to re redirect it to God. And it's like, wait a second, God, the father that yeah. doesn't, doesn't translate right. And so the yeah. way that I've kind of learned how to hold it is more look like, God's will is my true spiritual bride. And I almost, I need to feminize it. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I need to like, otherwise yeah, I can't actually you. turn the, the sexual energy on. It's just like, it's, you know, just cause the way it's, you know, I'm shaped as a heterosexual. Right. And yep. so is that the appropriate way to do it? Or is there another way? Because otherwise it feels like there isn't a way to pray with my sexual energy if my, yeah. you know, I'm not actually acting out or acting it out with my wife. Yeah, Other me, than this image. Let me this give image. you a visual here. I, I, I'm a visual learner. Sure. And my daughter 
came to one of my courses where I talk about the three choices we have with erotic desire. And she's an artist and she sketched this image of the three choices. And I think the visual is very helpful here. So here are our three choices. We can be the stoic, right? Who just holds it all in. And I say, screw that. I'm not going in that direction. Tried that. Doesn't work. Yeah, right? stinks. This guy opens it up, but he's aiming it at finite pleasure, right? And if this proposal is accurate, that erotic energy is a yearning for infinity. Mm -hmm. That's the Christian proposal in a nutshell, <laughs> that that erotic energy is a yearning for the infinite. If that's true, then we're in trouble if we aim it at the finite. And and forgive me, but I, I hear songs in my head. You know, I, I was raised on the radio in the 70s and 80s, and just this whole catalog of music rumbles around in there and comes to me. So what I'm hearing right now is the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. Mick Jagger, at his own estimate, has had sex with over 2,000 women. <laughs> and yet he still sings... I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> right. And I try and I try and I try and I try. He tries and tries and tries. Why? Well, this math makes sense to me. Mick Jagger is aiming his desire for infinite joy at finite pleasure. Right. There's another way. There's another way. The stoic, the addict, right? We become an addict if we go in this direction because it never satisfies. We need more and more and more and more and more. This is not happiness, this is addiction. So we hear the three choices, stoic, addict, or aspiring mystic. What is the aspiring mystic doing? And I wanna propose here, Mark, that it's not just that he's aiming his energy upwards, it is that, but even more fundamentally, he's opening himself to receive what is coming from eternity into him. And here we can talk about the feminine and masculine principles that are at work in all of us. This can be a little funky for guys because we, we've come to believe that to be a man, I almost have to rid myself of anything that could be considered feminine because I don't want to appear effeminate right right but I want to I want to propose some this I'm going to get theological on you but I, I I really believe this corresponds to the deepest yearning of a man's heart let me let me put it to you this way okay. can I can I say it frankly yeah the man's yearning for the vagina I'm just gonna say it like that the man's <laughs> And what man cannot, there's an ache, there's a cry, there's a burning, aching, yearning, if I can put it this way, to go back home. Hmm. It's called nostalgia, right? Nostalgia actually means the longing for home. You came into this world and I came into this world through a woman's body. The birth canal is was the gateway into the world. 
and and we long to go back home. There, there. It's, it's. I could put it this way: like we spend the first nine months of our existence trying to get out, and we spend the rest of our lives wanting to get back in. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and I was about. Oh gosh, this was maybe a year ago. Again, catalog of songs in my head. And this song came back into my head from when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old by The Knack, a band called The Knack. And you might remember their more popular song, My Sharona. Do you know that song? Mm. My, my, my Sharona. Do, 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 do. Okay. I'm, a little, I'm a little older than you are. This was 1979. So what year were you born, Mark? 89. 89. Okay. I was born in 69. So I got 20 years on you. Apparently, actually, I was born when, like, the the day, September 5th, when uh, Theology of the Body was, like, first, like, written. You, well, that was 79. Or se- 79. Oh, it was 79? Yeah, oh, okay, 79 was when he first off. delivered it. It was just the day of it then. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> That's all right. So there's this song by a band called The Knack, and I, I won't get into the lyrics. I don't want to trigger anybody, but it was a very crass expression of yearning for the birth canal, if I could put it that way. Okay. Tastefully. And, and he, like he wanted, he wanted to be up close. Let's just put it that way. And I was being haunted by these lyrics. This was like a a year and a half ago. These lyrics are coming back to me and I'm like, gosh, darn it. That really screwed me over as a, as a teenage boy. Like it captivated me. It took me in, but it messed with me. It, it, It pornified the whole sexual reality to me. And my prayer has become over the years, I, I, I don't want to go in this direction. I want to go in this, this direction, right? Yeah. So I, I, there's a very important principle here. And I'll, I'm just, I'll put it this way, that the devil doesn't have his own clay. All he can do is take God's clay and twist it up. And God looked at the clay that he made and said, behold, it's very good. We were created, according to the biblical account, we were created male and female, naked without shame. Without shame because they experienced erotic desire as this longing for the infinite because their, their rocket engines were aimed in the right direction, right? That's what allows nakedness without shame. But because of this fundamental fault in humanity, the rocket engines get inverted and we're, we're aiming in the wrong direction. So that lyric in that song by the knack and the song was called good girls don't but i do right and it's this teenage angst and longing for the girl who will give him what he wants yeah this lyric is just bugging the heck out of me and it's it's like stirring up these pornographic memories in a pornographic frame of reference for sex and so i just cried out i was like god please please redeem these lyrics because something good has gotten twisted up here. Untwist it. Redirect it. Open me to the transcendent. Show me the true meaning of sex here. Show me the true meaning of my longing. And un- unbidden, this other song pops into my head from you 2 And the lyric from Bono goes like this. He says, I'm alive. I'm being born. I've just arrived. I'm at the door of the place I started out from. And I want back inside. I was like, holy shit. 
That's what I've been yearning for the whole time. I'm so attracted to the female body. I'm so attracted to, I'm going to put it tastefully. I'm going to put it in the language of the Song of Songs, right? I'm so attracted to woman's open, the open gates of her garden. That's how the Song of Song puts it, right? right? I'm so attracted to the open gates of her garden. Why? And I, I've, I've gone in a, a bit of a roundabout here, but I'm coming back to what we were talking about, about how do we redirect it? And, and I need to have this feminine principle and I need to understand it. And, and you spoke of the will of God as, as like your bride or something. And I don't, I don't want to say that that's wrong. I think you're on to something. But I think there may be something even deeper here. Okay. That we are so attracted to the open gates of woman's garden because they teach us something fundamental about our own humanity. What do they teach us? The creature by nature, if 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 God exists, God's the creator, where we are the creature. And in the biblical vision of things, there's a spousal analogy that God is always the bridegroom and humanity, male and female, were always the bride. Now, this is fascinating. All kinds of religions, all kinds of, of myths about the gods and the creatures and heaven and earth, all kinds of myths have this sense that God has a bride. But typically, the bride is also a goddess. The bride is also divine. In Christianity, there's something very different. The bride is not a goddess. The bride is not divine. In Christianity, the bride of, of God, the, the, the bride of the creator, is the creature. This is a bold proposal that as creatures, we are destined for a, a union with God that is akin to the union of man and woman. And, and St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, sums up the entire Christian mystery when he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father in heaven, excuse me, a man will leave his father and his mother, I jumped ahead, because it's actually Christ who leaves his father in heaven, but let me rewind. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his bride, Right? That's the sexual act. And then St. Paul says, this is a mega mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, well, that could just sound like theological word salad. What does that even mean? The Christian proposal is that God has manifested himself in the flesh to become one flesh with us, to become one in the flesh with us. And this cry, this erotic longing that we all feel is ultimately a longing for God. And in the analogy here, whether you're a male or female, in our relationship to God, we're all 
the bride. And the female body, this is what I come back to over and over and over again. In my haunting longing for the open garden gates, if I may put it that way, in my haunting longing for those gates, what I'm really longing for is for woman to teach me what it means to become open to this infinite love, to this infinite energy, to this infinite infilling, to allow the infinite one into me, into me. Woman's body, this is why John Paul II says that woman is the model and the archetype of the whole human race. That she shows us what it means to be human. Because to be human in this proposal is to open ourselves to an infinite infilling. And the real feminine principle here that we're looking for is a woman named Mary. And this woman named Mary, this biblical figure named Mary, this is the proposal. I just hold it out for people to think upon. This woman opened her very body to the infinite and eternal. And she allowed the infinite and eternal to enter her, to penetrate her inmost being as a woman. And what happens? If Christianity is real, she conceives the infinite one within her. So let's go back to that priest and that couple, those young lovers under the stars. What does what you're doing here have to do with the stars? Everything. This is a mega mystery. The union of man and woman in one flesh is a mega mystery and it refers to the way Christ loves us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Well, the ultimate man who did that is Christ. Christ left his father in heaven. He left the home of his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that the church, who is the bride, might become one flesh with him. What's the purpose of sex? To launch us like a rocket to the stars. You know what another name for this is, Mark? Opening Something. this yearning to the eternal. Another name for this is prayer. <laughs> prayer is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. And if this wigs us out as men that we are the bride in this relation, and I believe me, I, I understand how that can do a number on you. Here's what I'll say to guys. Guys, if that wigs you out, okay, let me give you another analogy. But the end result is the same. We are the receiver here. In the relationship between God and us, we are the receiver. Jesus is the quarterback. You are the wide receiver, right? Open wide and let him throw you the ball. <laughs> so I, I hear what you're saying 100% and like theologically, even logically, makes sense. I'm talking, I guess, the, the part where I run up against this a little bit, and I think most guys do as well, is that like what you're talking about, even by what you're saying here, it's a mystery. But what's not a mystery is, to put it crassly, I got fucking energy that wants yep. to get out. 
And the yep. only way I have access to it, the only way I can really work with it, is if there's some sort of receptive female form involved. And yep. what you're describing here is there is no, there isn't any of that. And so, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. Okay, that's so where, where is it? Where is it? Because okay. like, where does it actually? Like, I have this desire, this procreative, you know, yeah. intercoursal energy. I don't. I, I'm missing the internal alchemy of how it then becomes. Okay. Yeah. Let me let me let me point it. Let me point you in this direction. What I'm saying is, for the energy to come out in a way that does not backfire. Right. Yeah. We have to first be receptive to an energy that is creative and life-giving and builds us up and builds others up instead of destroying us, right? This energy, this rocket fuel is so powerful that when it is misdirected, it destroys us. But when it is rightly directed, it launches us to the stars. It launches us to everything we desire. And we've only taken the first step here. I'm saying okay. for the energy to come out in the right direction. Okay. Towards a woman in a in a career, in it, because it can come out in all kinds of ways, right? Right. It has to come out. But for it to come out in a creative way, we have to first receive the energy that comes from God. And here, I'm I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. I, I can't ultimately speak of these realities without using this language. Christ, from eternity, is receiving that energy himself. That's what enabled him to give it to us, right? And he says this himself. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. From all eternity, he's receiving this energy of fatherhood, that masculine energy, he's receiving it from the Father in order to give it, right? Okay. And then he says, remain in this love, remain in this energy, receive it, remain in it, and then give it. Love one another as I have loved you. There always has to be a feminine receptivity to the energy that is poured out. Let me show you my favorite image of what happened at the cross. The cross makes no sense unless there is a feminine energy receiving the masculine gift, hmm. right? That's what Christianity is. He, as male, right? Christ is male. He's receiving eternally the energy from God the Father in order to pour it out. And she is now receiving and the, the image here, the, the way the artist has rendered this, she's holding a chalice and she's receiving into the chalice the flow of blood and water from his pierced side. Well, do you know what St. Augustine called that? St. Augustine called that the spiritual seminal fluid, as it were, of Christ the bridegroom. And guess what happens to the woman at the foot of the cross? Now, this is, this is on a mystical level, right? It's not a genital reality at the cross. But at this mystical, spiritual level, this woman receiving the positive power of the masculine energy, she becomes the new Eve. She becomes the mother of all the living. Jesus says to the woman at the foot of the cross, Behold your son. 
And that's the beloved disciple, John. And that that's the whole mystery of Christianity is one of regeneration, regeneration. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't go to the stars. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're regenerated. And Nicodemus is confused. He's like, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. That's where we long to go. We long to go back home. We long with that nostalgia to go back into her gates, into that warm dwelling, into that place where we come from. But if we go back there with inverted rocket engines, we're going to treat her like a thing, like an object, like a, a thing for my pleasure. And we're not going to learn how to love. If we open to receive that positive energy from God, who created sexual energy? God, right? What's it for in the male body? To testify, to testify, testicles, testimony, testament, testify. You and I are created by God to testify to what? To his eternal life-giving love. We are created to become fathers. Testicles make no sense apart from fatherhood. And I think, I think one of the biggest lies we've embraced that has gotten us into this effed up mess in the modern world is the sterilization of our, of our masculinity. Hmm. I'm just going to say it this way. Satan is after our balls. <laughs> That's what he's after. He's yeah. <clears throat> after your balls, Mark. He's after my balls. He's after your balls, listeners. That's what he wants. He wants to turn your testimony into a counter testimony. He, he doesn't want you to testify to the fatherhood of God. He wants you to use and abuse other people to, so that sexual energy becomes destructive rather than constructive. For it to be constructive, we have to first receive it from heaven so that we can give it in the right way. I love that, you know, and, and so the, the question, like, you know, I'm always trying to bring it more practical. And so like for you personally, are you at the point where it's like you can have a sexual urge and then you can take like, does that energy, does it become a completely different energy? Like when you're, you know, redirecting it or is it still it, feel like the same energy? It becomes an energy of a different character. Like it still wells up from from the balls, if you will. Okay. But it's it's of a different character. It's of a different nature. It becomes an energy to want to bless. It becomes an energy to want to give rather than an energy to want to take. It becomes an energy that is incredibly vulnerable. And this that's a scary word for guys. Holy God, it's scary to be vulnerable. But if, if we want to talk about what we're really called to here, and, and I'm a theologian, right? So these are my reference points. We got to talk about this thing in the Bible that, you know, makes us very uncomfortable, but you can't avoid it. Circumcision. Mm -hmm. What the hell is going on <laughs> with God telling Abraham and all his descendants to cut the skin off the tip of their penis? What the hell is that? Yeah. What is that? Right. Let's do, can we talk about this? Yes. Are you right if we go there? All right. So what 
is the problem in the beginning. The very first result of what we call original sin is that we cover our genitals. We're hiding. There's something about our genitals that we don't like anymore. We're afraid of. They make us vulnerable in a way that makes us very uncomfortable, so we hide. So God comes to Abraham, and the promise, the covenant, the testament, is one of fruitful sexual union. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, right? Offspring, 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 more numerous than the stars. And then God says to Abraham, I want to inscribe a sign of this covenant, this testament, in your flesh. I want something in your flesh so that you are reminded of what I'm calling you to. This fertility, this fatherhood, this testimony to the fatherhood of God. And you can imagine Abraham. He's like, okay, God, what do you have in mind? Like a bone through the nose or a tattoo on the shoulder. What do you got in mind? You want me to like take a razor blade and carve something in my chest? And God's like, no. See that sharp rock over there, Abraham? See that dangly piece of skin at the tip of your penis? Cut it off. You and all your male descendants, cut it off. This will be the sign inscribed in your flesh of my covenant. What the bleep is this? All right, let's press in. Let's press in. Who's going to see this sign and when? Well, it's just pretty much, I guess, someone, uh, I guess when you're naked, you know, anyone around you when you're naked or, you know, obviously in sexual activities. Boom. Let's go with that one. Every time you engage in sex, you and your bride are going to be reminded that you are called to utter exposure utter nakedness. It's like God is saying, you are hiding behind fig leaves. Okay, I want you so naked that even the natural covering is removed. I want you exposed. I want you to know something the woman already knows. What does the woman already know? The woman already knows that to participate in this life-giving love demands the sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood. She bleeds every month. Every month her body reminds her that participating in life-giving love demands the giving up of flesh and the shedding of blood. The man is more distant from that whole reality. He can have his pleasure and go his merry way. And that's exactly the problem. This is the failure of masculinity right here. This is the root of all of the rage, the understandable rage that women have towards men because we see them as outlets for our pleasure. We have our pleasure and we say, see you later, and we stick her with the kid. And the modern world solution to dysfunctional men is to give women contraception and if that doesn't work, give them abortion. As long as men remain dysfunctional, 
as long as men treat women as objects for their pleasure, where they can have their pleasure, plant their seed, and go their merry way, women will believe the only way out of this effed up mess is to sterilize myself, and if that doesn't work, to kill the offspring. Well, that's, that's effed up. The real solution is that men pay attention to what we're called to here. The sacrifice of flesh and the shedding of blood right where it hurts. God is saying to Abraham and all his male descendants, I want you to learn what it really means that I gave you balls. Why did I give you balls? Why did I give you a penis? To testify, to testify to my eternal fatherhood. And in my covenant, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will stay with you through thick and thin. I am with you forever and ever and ever. I will never leave you. Sex is supposed to make us so vulnerable that we the only way we can do it is if we have pledged and she has pledged that we will never leave one another. That we commit to this. I will never, I will be so naked with you. I will be so vulnerable with you that I will never leave you and you will never leave me. And we commit to this. That and that alone does justice to how naked we are supposed to be. There's no freaking way I can be as naked as I'm supposed to be with my wife in the sexual act if I believe she's going to leave me. If she's going to abandon me, screw it. I'm not going to be, I can't be that naked. I'm just going to, I'm going to wear an armor. I'm going to, I'm not going to be circumcised. I'm not going to let myself out there. I'm not going to shed blood here. I'm going to protect myself, take my pleasure, use her and, and, and cut bait and, and be done with it. Right. But the call of circumcision is the call of an utter naked vulnerability that is committed to the covenant, committed to be a true image of the way God loves. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that commitment is called marriage, right? In the modern world, dysfunctional men and dysfunctional women, but, but I, I, wanna, I don't even want to talk about the dysfunction of women right now. It's not that they don't play a role with their own dysfunction. They do. They do, they do, they do. It takes two to tango, all that stuff. But I want to call men to be men here. The ultimate goal of the circumcision of the flesh in the New Testament is to point us to a circumcision of our hearts. What does that mean? It means we're learning to expose what really goes on inside. It means we're willing to put what's going on in my heart out into the light. I'm not going to cover it over. I'm not going to hide anymore behind fig leaves or behind foreskin or whatever. I'm going to expose my heart. I'm going to open it like this. I'm going to open it the whole freaking way and let what's really going on in me, all that's messed up, all that's effed up, all that's selfish, all that's prideful, all that's lustful, all that looks at the opposite sex as object for my pleasure. I'm going to open that up and I'm going to let the light come into this dark place in my own heart that's been covered over. 
and I'm going to let my heart be circumcised. I'm going to let my heart bleed. I'm going to let my heart feel what it really feels, and I'm going to invite the light in. And Jesus has a word for this. He says, if your body is in darkness, how dark will the darkness be? But bring every part of your body into the light and your body will illuminate you like a burning lamp and your body will show you the path of what it means to love. Your body will show you the path of what it means to testify to a love that does justice to the dignity of the human person. And this is where sexual energy it's still sexual energy, but it gets redirected towards the good of my wife and towards the good of my offspring. That's the call of having a penis and testicles. <laughs> it's the call to testify to this love that is for the other. But sexual energy as we experience it in this broken world is an energy that is for me. And then I use others, I abandon the people I use, and I abandon my offspring, and we have the fucked up world we're living in right now. That's what happens. If this world is to turn a corner, if this world is to change direction, if we're to climb out of the, the darkness that we have descended into, the only way is to bring our masculinity into the light. So... Let's take that full circle. I love it, what you're saying. Now, most guys are going to be filled with far more sexual energy than they're going to be able to actually utilize in the, the marital act with their, yes. their wife. You know, many guys are not married, you know, and they're miles away from having that happen. Yes. Okay. So what my biggest concern is figuring out how can they actually hold and work with that energy practically speaking. So it's like yes. what you're talking about here is first there needs to be an opening, right? There needs to be this opening of like, hey, I want something more than this. I want yes. something more than, you know, a, a shallow orgasm, you know, looking at some screen, right? And can I pause there just to connect Go. the yes. dots with yeah, what yeah. I said earlier? Yes. You, you put it very well. There has to be an opening. And that opening is what I'm calling the feminine principle exactly. yes. in my own heart. There has to be an opening. Yep. Keep going. Okay. From there, you open up, you realize, all right, I want something more than just these pixels on the screen or even just, you know, that that girl for a night. Yep. But then I still have that that very raw sexual desire. Yep. And you're you're describing a process where this it, it changes character. So, yep. for example, like how do I tell how do I get a guy to take his desire to jerk off and put it into uh improving his life you know yep. like the way that the way that i've come across that actually seems to keep the machinery going is like i was saying is like you can visualize the will of god or another way of putting it as your highest conception of goodness as a woman that you are wooing she's like your ideal woman and yep. she's watching you and your job yep. is to impress her that allows you to kind of engage that sexual courtship machinery in your brain yep. still yep. feels like sexual energy and i guess like is there is there a, a better way to approach that another way to look at that just i'm, I'm looking for a way that's because a lot of times, like in these theological kind of conversations, there's a lot of hand waving that happens behind a yep. lot of really beautiful language of like, yep. hey, yeah, you're supposed to do all this kind of stuff. But then the guy's like, well, 
that doesn't map to my experience. I'm having trouble yeah. tracking it through the dark to really bring it home. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I hear you, Mark. I hear you. And I, I, let me see if I can speak from my own experience. Sure. The only experience I have is mine. Right. Right. And, and my context here, which may not fit for every man's context who's listening to this, is an encounter with Jesus Christ as the real man who can teach me what it means to be a real man. And I'm going to point to one of his original followers, the Apostle Paul, who says in so many words that that, that negative sexual energy, which is aimed just at pleasing myself at somebody else's expense— Right. I'm going to go jerk off because I've been stimulated by pixels on a screen. Right. Paul says that has to be crucified. That has to die in order not to stay in death, not to stay in blackness, not to fall into a void, but in order to be transformed through a resurrection into something powerful, beautiful and creative. Okay. The mystery here is one of death and rebirth. And all of creation speaks of this, right? Right now, it's fall here in Pennsylvania, and the leaves are starting to change color. What's going on? They're dying. The leaves are dying, and there's something beautiful about the death. The, the vivid oranges and reds and, and fiery yellows, th this is a sign of, of a death. But what's going to happen? In a few months, next April, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be new life, right? This whole process of dying and rising, it's written into the whole universe. And Paul is saying, tap into that. Tap into that energy. Let that selfish energy, what he calls the passions of the flesh, let that be crucified. Let it die. And you're going to come out on the other side of it with a resurrected experience of sexual energy, which will become more and more, as you allow this death and resurrection to happen in your life, it will become more and more the desire to love truly, faithfully, beautifully, transcendently. And here, here's, again, speaking from my own experience, when I get that energy that's pushing me in the wrong direction, I'm going to put myself in the shape of a cross, I'm going to outstretch my hands. And if I'm tempted to masturbate, guess what? Having my hands out here is a good place to have them. And I got to keep them there until I make a Passover. And I'm just, I'll speak from my own experience. This is what it looks like. Holy flipping God, I got this feeling in my balls that feels like it's going to explode. I feel like I'm going to explode, but I'm opening it to you. And I ask you, please, please take this energy and crucify it. I'm willing to die to it. I'm willing to die with you in it because I believe, I believe with all my being that on the other side of this death, I'm not going to fall into a void. I'm not going to fall into nothingness. I'm going to experience a resurrected life. I'm going to pass over into a new way of seeing, living, and experiencing sexual desire. But here's, here's the key to it all. There's no one, two, three step that I can do myself to fix myself. If I could fix myself, I don't need a savior at all. And I don't think there's any authentic masculinity until men get to the point of realizing I'm so effed up. 
I can't fix myself. I need a higher power. Call it whatever you will. I need a higher power to save me, right? This is just part and parcel of any 12-step program. I got to a place of finding I couldn't change myself. I couldn't fix myself. And I entrusted myself to a higher power. I entrusted myself to God as I understand him. Well, I understand God as revealed fully in the body of a man, Jesus Christ, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago and is still today infusing this world with the power that came through his masculine body. And I can open to receive that. It's very concrete for me as a Catholic. It's called the sacraments. It's called baptism. It's called the Eucharist. It's called confession, where this energy reaches my very body and allows me concretely to experience this redirection, this transformation. Yeah. But I have to be saved there. I can't do it myself. And that's where my heart has to open hmm. to receive a gift. Well, I can't raise myself from the dead. Well, I can consent to being crucified, but I can't raise myself from the dead. And I guess this is where I see it being part of an issue with like, uh, I see what you're saying there. And, and, I, and I think like what you're saying is is correct. But I think that the, the character in which that's acted out in the church is often wrong. So, for I, example, I couldn't like, agree like, more. Well, I let, couldn't agree with you. more. We're so screwed up in the church. But, we can't even talk about this stuff. So, well, I'm talking beyond that. OK, so like. The, the thing that set my work aside is like, you know, a lot of guys, they can't quit porn. They go all these prayer services and it's pretty much just like, hey, you can't do this uh, on your own. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. And like, yes, there always has to be the place for, you know, call it God's grace, call it nature, call it, you know, whatever you're comfortable calling it. It's like, you know, you can go to the doctor and he can give you medicine. And it's still, you still have to rely on the, the God-designed biological processes to make the medicine work. Yeah. And so there is, of course, some, you know, God's hand is in it. But I feel like what, what has ended up happening, like you're saying, there is no one, two, three step. But like, what if there is? Like, why, why does this particular kind of issue need to be so mysterious and tricky when other things can be nailed down to literally exact science. And this is what I'm digging at. And this is what I found in my work is that, okay, things are actually like way more mappable and controllable than most people have, have understood. And I think that can take us to a certain point. I don't, I don't disagree with you. And it's the, there are natural realities at work here, mm -hmm. but eventually this is my experience. Eventually we're going to run into a place where we can't fix ourselves. There's no book I can read that will fix me. There's no 10 step or 12 step or whatever, however many step program that in itself, without an openness to a higher power, can save me, can fix me. We can, we can through these practical steps, we can dispose ourselves to being open to a gift mm -hmm. that doesn't originate in us. But we, we are not the masters of our own destiny here in the sense that I can determine myself, I can fix myself, I can cure myself. I can't cure myself. The, the, the illusion that I can cure myself, I, I would say in the end is, is diabolical. It's the idea that I can make myself God. I can't make myself God. 
But there is a God who wants to come into my life to redirect that energy in the right way. And I have to open, eventually, I have to find myself in abject poverty that I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can dispose myself to getting in a better posture, but ultimately that posture has to be one of receiving a gift that does not come from me. And again, that makes us utterly vulnerable. Mm. And it scares the shit out of us as men to be that vulnerable. Mm. But yeah. if we're not that vulnerable, there I, I don't see any I don't see any other way. I don't see any other way. Do you are you disagreeing with me here? And it's fine if we disagree, but let's just put that out in the light if you disagree. Uh I I disagree maybe with the the level of um mystery needed to go into it. I think that there are things that we can do. There are like um and maybe part of it's like a language thing too where it's like uh Yeah, we might be talking past each other here because there absolutely there are things we can do to dispose ourselves but ultimately we can't get around this is a mega mystery and mystery shouldn't scare us here mystery is scary if what we're surrendering ourselves to is just domination or tyranny or somebody else's agenda but if we are if the mystery is one of infinite perfect unconditional love then guess what it's okay to be open and receptive to that and i agree and i think the the point where i found it in my work is like it's kind of trying to build this this analog as i was saying to you before we we went live with this is like we talk about going into this this space of lack you know this is this is the cross this is you know the death and everything like that and what you need to find there the the one thing which is like in my case, like the my alcoholic anonymous, uh, you know, higher power or whatever is the concept of dignity. It's this idea, this unprovable idea must be taken on faith by free will is the idea that you have infinite, perfect, inherent worth. Yes. And that this worth justifies the sacrifice for your yes. your your well-being. Yes. And this, yes. you call this God's love. Or you can call it dignity, but there has to be this belief that you are worth sacrificing for. Because otherwise, why on earth would you put yourself through the death, right? And this Amen. is where guys get stuck, right? Yep, absolutely. I'm tracking. I'm all right with you. Yeah, and so I guess I guess we are probably saying the same thing here. And it's like when you do that, when you decide that you are worth the the sacrifice for your own benefit, like you are essentially lovable, right? That's when you can move past the the challenge here and that's that's the this micro death and rebirth that happens yes, that has to yes. happen every single day and even with every single sexual craving and some yes, level right yes, yes and so yes, what yes. i found is like when you actually dive into that you instead of like for I, I would say there's three levels of like masculinity all right first level is you're running you're running away from the battlefield okay second level is you reluctantly go to the battlefield. It's like, all right, I'm going to find every way I can around this, but if I really, really have to find, all right, oh, I'll die for this, okay? Third level is you say, bring it on. You actually start hunting it down. You go on 
offense. Yep. And this yep. is where I feel like this is what, like, are you familiar with, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of Thumos, like the Greek concept of Thumos. Have you heard of that? Thumos, refresh my memory. It sounds so, somewhat familiar, but it's not regular word. I sure. Use. So Thumos is the, the Greek concept of like masculine fire. Like they would call like, you know, Thumos would be like the desire for men to like go fight, you know, compete. Like uh, it's, it's essentially this, the spirit of combative uh, masculinity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that I see it is like that can go in two different directions. On one level, I, I broke it down. I call one level Dumos, which is the idea that you lack inherent worth and then you are going to go conquer so that you can earn the status and fill up that black hole like you're going to go get the sexual status financial status whatever and you got to go get it and do whatever means necessary lumos would be the idea the flip side that you already are good you already have this dignity and then it's your job to reflect it everywhere it's like you, you are to be that that radiant knight who lets that goodness shine forth in all that you do and so like to me that ends up what ends up becoming what's on the other side, right? It's kind of like you can go through this process, you die to this thing, but in the process of dying, if you, the more you embrace it, the more of this bring it on, more of this like combative energy, and then you become out like you know it's been used so much it's it's cringy like the warrior for Christ kind of thing. Yes, yes, but like yes, when yes. you actually tap into this energy, it's like it's real. It's like yes. it's that fire. It's that that thumos that uh, of masculine like that I think, you know, women can access for sure in the same way that men can access tenderness, but women don't have the same machinery to thrive in that fire, to operate it on it all the time, which I think men do. Like we are meant to be connected to that combative energy. And so it's like our sexual energy, I see it, it can go toward actual practical procreation or it can go to status acquisition. And so if we can do this status acquisition from a place of already being perfectly good and not needing it, then that's the, the war path of the, the aligned, you know, spiritual man. That's, that's, I I think I'm, I think I'm tracking with you. And I guess I would, I would only add this and I'd, I'd like your perspective on it. That dignity that you're grounding everything in. Yeah. I already have a worth and dignity worth sacrificing for. That has to come from somewhere. Yes, it does. And so for and me so as, a, we, as a Christian, Jesus, yeah, right? There, That's right. easy. So we, we, easy. Have to, we have to open to that. We <laughs> right. have to open to that to receive it and live from that. And and that that is where I think we're, we're saying the same thing, maybe with, with just different language, that we are our, our reality. You did not ask to exist. Right. I did not ask to exist, which means... We owe our existence to something bigger than us, right? We are not the makers of our own humanity. Our humanity is something we have received. It is something that has been given to us. What is that reality that has given it to us? And what is the reality that has been given to us? And I would say, and I think you would agree with me, that the reality that has been given to us is a dignity and a worth that calls for a sacrifice and is worthy of, of, of a sacrifice. To live from that place, realizing my great worth and dignity and will be being and realizing the great worth and dignity of everyone else and fighting to uphold it. That's masculinity at its core. Yes. 
I agree. 100%. That's, yeah, that's so- like, yeah, I think that's it. And yes. Yeah, so, so, all right. There's a bunch of other stuff I want to talk to you about. You mind if we, sh- we shift gears here? Shift. Sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. This one, this one's been bugging me. All right. And I think you might have some interesting thoughts on it. There is like this idea in Christianity, and I would say it applies like across the board to people who may struck, suffer from, you know, just the idea of perfectionism, not being good enough, whatever. All right. But I think in Christianity, you can particularly fall into this trap of basically like the more I suffer for goodness, the more holy I am. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, God, of course, loves you no matter what, even sinner, saint, whatever. But like the more you suffer for God, the more you suffer for the goodness of other people, the more holy you become. And so what it creates then is like you take that to the extreme and it's like the ideal Christian life is basically as much torture as you possibly can stand uh, until you can get into heaven. And it's like, okay, that's one way. That sounds horrible. I don't want to do that at all. And yeah. so I just feel not good enough my whole life yeah. yep. or is the answer to seek. It's almost like, like I have a three and a half year old daughter and she's, you know, adorable, you know, wonderful and just the best thing in my life. And she, the way she approaches life is like, how much fun can I get away with? Right. While right. still being in the rules, you know, cause she wants right. to be a good girl, but like how much fun can I get away with? And so it's like, I feel like, one of these has got to be the answer. And I want it to be that one, but it's like theologically, it seems more like, well, how much suffering can you stand? That's really the way you should be living. Yeah. I, I, Mark, I hear you. And I, I face the same struggle and dichotomy in my, my own heart. And I'm, I'm reminded of something GK Chesterton said. He said, I discovered that indeed Christianity has a rule, but the purpose of the rule is to give the boundaries in which good things can run wild. Mm. Love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it. If we allow good things to run wild, we have to talk, this would be the way I would put it, vertical wildness versus horizontal wildness. And, And I think of, again, forgive my rock and roll references, but this is what I was raised on. I'm thinking of Steppenwolf and the old song, Born to be wild, right? Yeah. What is this thing that we feel? Where does that song come from in Steppenwolf that he's born to be wild? Uh, and, And there's some wild energy in us that needs, it's not an option, it needs to be expressed, pressed out. But if we take that wild energy horizontally, we're going to end at a frat party, right? We're going to end at the movie Animal House. And that's just debauchery. The suffering that comes, and suffering is part of the picture. It's not the goal. It's not what we're seeking. But it's a necessary part of redirecting from what I would call horizontal wildness to vertical wildness, right? We are... We are called to launch towards the stars, but there's something off kilter. We're, we're bent in the wrong direction. So the chiropractic adjustment that is needed is going to demand of me a sacrifice. It's going to demand, I'm going to have to give something up and that's going to hurt me. 
that's going to that's going to involve a suffering. The suffering is not the goal. The suffering is the means to the wild things to to allowing good things to run wild. To let them run wild in the right direction, it it it'll it'll cost me. Uh, for example, I am committed. I am committed to fidelity to my wife, right? But that's going to cost me because I have things that pull at me in another direction. And it's it's a suffering not to follow those things. I have to die to that. That's, that's what I'm saying. In, there's a price to be paid for letting good things run wild. And, and so that's how I would see it. Suffering is not the goal. What in about fact, where it's like optional? So like, for example, like you could, you could call it maybe scrupulosity or whatever, but it's like, all right, is it more holy to never drink? Or should I you no. know, just drink no, 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 some? No. Or like, is it like, like, you know, you can always get more and more perfect with yourself, even though it's not a sin to drink. Is it more holy to not? No, like, no, no, no. I would say it's more holy to learn how to drink rightly than never to drink. Hmm. Right? Why did they accuse the Pharisees, the do-gooders, the guys who followed all the rules to the letter, right? These guys con confused uh, Jesus's enjoyment of food and wine with gluttony and drunkenness, right? They accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton because they never experienced somebody who enjoyed wine and food as much as Jesus did, right? He was free to enjoy it in the right way, in a vertically wild way, right? And, and in their category, the Pharisees, they only had these two categories, mm. right? So the Pharisees see somebody enjoying wine as much as Jesus did, and this is the only category they have for it. But Jesus is enjoying wine in this category. He's experiencing wine as something that's a foretaste of the eternal, right? He's enjoying wine in a vertically wild way. But the pharisaical concept is you can only enjoy wine in a horizontal way. So the solution to that is to repress it all and don't drink it all. And now you're more holy. Mm. So uh, basically, I, the holiness then is to enjoy it as much as possible without, I guess, negative consequence, right? To get as close to like the the, the full. It's like you're looking I, for that that peak pleasure where the the, the pain does not, I guess, out. Uh, I would say it, it this way. The goal is to experience all the pleasures of this world, be it sex, wine, beer, music, uh, a walk up a mountain, what, what, all the beauties, all the joys, all the pleasures of this life are to be experienced as so many foreshadowings, so many signs that point us to a beauty and a joy and a pleasure beyond. I think we get in trouble when we expect the pleasures of this world to be our ultimate satisfaction. Sure. They, they can't be that, but they can be, and they are meant to be so many foreshadowings. So I would say with the pleasures of this world, we have to continue to travel upstream to their source because Wine is something finite. Sex is something finite. Uh, the, the beauty of a sunset is something finite. It points to a beauty. It points to a joy that is 
infinite. That is not finite. That is beyond. We get in trouble, I put it this way, when we absolutize the pleasures of this world. And so the goal is to to rejoice in the pleasures of this world in such a way that they direct us to the pleasures of the next world. So that means that ultimately there needs to, like we need to create that space for continued longing, right? I think Amen. In, in, yes. fill, in fill these hearts, you're like, what was the, was the, I forget the other side of it, but the, the where you're supposed to end up is this fast and feast cycle where Correct. not only do you enjoy the feast, but you also enjoy the fast because there is, fast. there's, you know, with fasting actually becoming more power or popular with intermittent fasting and stuff like that, people are starting to realize, oh, it actually feels like, yeah, good to fast. You know, it actually yes. like it's a good hunger. There's something to it. Yes, there's a rhythm here. It's so important. There's a rhythm to feasting and fasting. If you never fast, guess what? You never feast. True. Put it this way. If you always feast, you never feast. You, you need the space between the notes to make the music beautiful. Yeah. And I guess you could right. argue that, like, if you always fast, then you're not even fasting. You're just living. Correct. Correct. Deprived, right? Correct. Correct. There has to be a rhythm. There's a time to fast and there's a time to feast. And if you never fast, you don't know how to feast. And if you never feast, you don't know how to fast. Without the rhythm, mm. you're you're either going to be indulge or repress. And that's going to be your, right. you're just going to be flip-flopping between these two, the stoic and the addict. Right. right? And so it's like the, this is like the, the thing for me, I, I'll, I'll try and get, plugged into some static, some like final state, but everything's in vibration. Like, and that's what we're dealing Like that's really where we find balance in this world is in a wave cycle between two two extremes. And if you try and just look for some, something flat, non-moving, you're not going to find it. And it's, it's going to eventually cause some kind of problem. Can I tell you a story here that I think might illuminate this point? Or did you want to move on to another point? Um, I do want to move on to another point, but I want to hear the story. Okay, so here's the story. So when I was a little boy in the summer of 1980, I was I was almost 11 years old, and we traveled to California. It was my first time on a commercial airline, and it was a big, exciting thing. We went to San Diego, and I remember having this thing in San Diego called Mexican chocolate, and it was this kind of crumbly, salty, cinnamony, chocolatey glory. Mm-hmm. And the taste was so exquisite that I never forgot it. And my whole life, I'd be like, man, I, I wish I'd run into some Mexican chocolate again. Well, fast forward to, this was like five years ago, I was in San Diego giving some, some lectures. And we went out for dinner to a nice restaurant. And I love a good, dark beer. Mm-hmm. And I look at the menu and I see on the menu, Mexican chocolate beer. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, could it be? Could it be that 40 years later, I'm going to experience in beer form (laughs) this glorious flavor? So I ordered one of these. It came out in this beautiful like craft glass and the whole sensual experience of it was exquisite. And I raised it to my nose and I got one whiff and I was like, Oh, glory. This is it. This is it. It's that Mexican chocolate and it's in a beer. And I, I, every sip, Mark, was exquisite delight to Mm -hmm. my senses. 
And it started opening like my senses. I don't know how else to say it. My senses started splitting open and I received this beer as a sheer delight and gift and foreshadowing of eternity. Like if eternity is that beer magnified, I'm going to be delighted. <laughs> and I, I ordered another one. I had two. And then I thought, I got to go to the bartender. I got to ask him where this beer comes from. I don't care how much money it's going to cost. I'm going to ship this to my home. Like I got to have this beer. And I was walking over to the bartender to, to ask him where I could get this beer and how I could have it shipped to my house. And I realized, you know what? I don't need to do that. That experience tonight was so exquisite that I know heaven is real. And I know that I tasted tonight a foreshadowing of a bliss and delight that I long for to last forever. And, and it was an experience of rejoicing to the max in that beer, but not falling into the trap of the addict. I need right. more. I need more. I need more. I need more. There's an openness, learned, right? There's a yeah, it was an openness to the transcendent. Right. And it became an experience of an earthly pleasure to the max that split open and opened me to the transcendent. And that same experience with beer that I had can happen with sex. It can happen with music. It can mm. happen with a good movie. It can happen climbing a mountain. It can happen in, in delighting rightly in any of the pleasures of the world. It can split open and lead us to transcendence. And we can delight in it fully, but we're not crushed when we don't have access to it or we can't delight in it because it's not our ultimate goal. It's pointing us to our ultimate goal. I love it. Yes. I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're right on with that. And that's, uh, that's one of those things where it's like, it's almost like a, like when you're having something that's really delicious, like something that's really like some, even like incredible music, incredible food. It's not just sweet. Okay. Like there is, a whole complexity in it to make it something incredible. There might be bitterness, there might be yes, astringence, yes, there might be yes. dissonance in the music, like this kind of stuff. Yes. And I think that's, we almost need to have a more sophisticated emotional palate in order Amen. to like really yes. appreciate life. So yes. it's like yes. in that allowing for some of that ache, allowing for that longing, which we typically associate with lack and not you know negativity and that sort of thing. In the right context, that actually lights us on fire. It actually takes us takes things up to like the next level kind yes, of thing. Yes. And so And that's what I mean by traveling upstream. Yeah. In our experiences of beauty and pleasure and joy. Don't absolutize the pleasures of this world. Keep traveling upstream because they lead you somewhere. They lead you beyond. They open you to the stars. Exactly. So, okay. We've been talking about like men here. Primarily, but I want to talk a little bit about women here because over the past uh, week I've done some videos talking about how like female clothing, particularly at the gym where women wear almost see-through painted on stuff, yep. is inappropriate. Okay, and I've gotten you know a lot of people agreeing with me, a number of people pushing back, and so that's one piece of it of like where is the line with what's appropriate to wear, but then 
Well, let me, let me let's let's start there, and then I'll, I'll go into the second part of it. You don't need to spend super long on it, but just yeah. I I, I want to the the angle I want to come at this is challenging men not to put the blame for our problems on the way a woman is dressing. So no, this, this, so the, the, to frame this, it's like, at the end of the day, it's entirely the man's responsibility to deal with it. Bottom right. line, we, you know, and that's what we address. But then the question is like, okay, well, we as fathers, we need to promote certain yes. norms. Yes. There are, yes. you know, we can have a voice in what we believe is appropriate in modern culture yes. and that yes. sort of thing. So it's more about where can we speak I guess where can we speak into this issue? Because modern society tells us, "Shut up, you're a man. You 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 don't have a say in this. This is her body." And it's like I I don't get any opinion about what pe what my daughter wears or what people are wear around my kids and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, again, I I want to. I'm he I'm hesitant to say here's the line, mm -hmm. like because then you have to start to get into measuring right. inches below the neckline right. or something. I think I, it's I'm just not cultural too. It's like, you know, where the current climate is, it's like all yeah. subjective. It's like if you were raised in a topless society, well then clearly right. it's 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 a different thing, right? Sure. So, so but here's here's what I do want to say. If women knew their worth, like we were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. If they knew their great dignity. And if they knew that wearing that paint on thing at the gym, if they knew what that was 95% of the time doing in the minds and hearts of the men. It's uncharitable. They would not dress that way. Right. But this takes, you can't just go up to that woman and say, you shouldn't dress this way because yeah. there's a whole formation that she's lacking that led her to dress that way. Right. And you have to you have to meet her where she is. What she look let's let me paint a picture here. Let's say, I mean, every female yearns for at her heart of hearts, she might have repressed this, but at her heart of hearts, she yearns for masculine attention and affirmation. And suppose you have a, a your daughter, she's three years old, right? She she I know she loves you and longs for your attention, right? Right. But suppose you show her that attention, but you're addicted to porn. Mm -hmm. And then she hits puberty and she's developing breasts. And you no longer bounce her on your knee. You no longer hug her because of your own issues with porn and your own weird experiences of having a daughter now with breasts that you're attracted to. And you don't know how to handle that. And you're dipping into porn and you're masturbating. And she knows you are. And she's put off by you. And you don't know how to love her. You don't know how to affirm her. And you're putting a distance now between you and her. But she still longs for that masculine attention that she's no longer getting from daddy. Right. But she's realizing at school, oh, if I wear a tighter shirt, more boys look at me. More boys want to talk to me. More boys give me attention. My, my point here is I'm trying to paint a picture of the world we have created in our own sexual dysfunction that leads women to seek masculine attention in disordered ways. What she really desires is to be seen, but she's settling for being looked at. Hmm. It's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. I have asked hundreds of thousands of women, like when I'm giving a presentation and I, I speak to audiences around the world, when I'm giving a presentation, I will ask the women, 
Ladies, do you prefer to be seen by a guy or looked at by a guy? Never has a hand gone up in being looked at. Every woman intuits the distinction. Yeah. I what I really long for is to be seen. But in the modern world, if I may quote Jesus again, he says, "We look, but we do not see." And in that world where we look but do not see, women are trained to settle for being looked at. And they're trained to know how to dress in such a way that they'll get the look. Right. Right. So so we have to we have to learn how to see women rightly and and affirm their desire for the right kind of masculine attention and affirmation. And that means we have to do all that work to redirect that energy in the right way in order really to solve this problem. Simply saying to the woman, you shouldn't dress that way is not going to solve the problem. She needs a whole re-education in her dignity and her worth. Right. It's kind of like there's there's a deeper issue in the same way that like the abortion issue is not going to be solved by, you know, passing Correct. one law or another. It's like Correct. there needs to be a complete Correct. reconstruction of our beliefs around sexuality. Right. Correct. The whole same thing. thing. So, same thing. all right. Take that a little bit further. Right. There's a there's a woman that uh, my wife knows and she, you know, identifies as Catholic and she has she does this. She's gone down an interesting path with her art. Okay, and it's essentially erotic art where she is exposing as much as you can possibly expose on Instagram with like a lot of like BDSM gear, very explicitly sexual. But her stance is that this is art. This is not pornography. And to me, it seems very obviously pornography. But like I realized that I didn't have a strong intellectual or philosophical stance to say, you know, that's inappropriate or not. It's like, okay, well, so how do we find that line between the pornographic and the artistic? Because clearly there is erotic art that is valid, beautiful art that speaks to a true human thing. And then we've got something that's porn, which is different. Right. right? Right. And so I'm sure you've thought about this a ton. Yeah. I've thought about this at, at length. Um, yeah, what's the difference, I'll put it this way, what's the difference between the nudity in the Sistine Chapel and the nudity that this woman is showing on, on Instagram, right, or, or near nudity? Well, the difference is in the intention of the artist, right? The intention of Michelangelo was to portray through the naked body the full dignity and worth of the human being. His goal was to portray the naked body in such a way that we see that dignity, right? When you are portraying the body in such a way as to gain the look rather than the seeing, well, then you're treating the body as an object to be looked at rather than as the revelation of a person who has dignity to be seen. I think we can we can go back to that difference between looking and seeing. But right? that but 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 then that's a thing of the intention of the artist. So it's like you could have an artist who decides to fornicate with their partner in the middle of a restaurant and they truly sincerely believe that they are sharing like they're they're doing something of artistic value. Well, they're so, wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, agree. So, so right? they, yeah, they are. They don't understand the way the world works, or maybe they do, and they're and they're just capitalizing on it. Uh, and and here here we need to distinguish here. This is another in to the same question. What is the difference between nakedness without shame and shameless nudity? Right, they're very different. And I'll tell you a story that illustrates the point. Okay. Uh, I had a student years ago who told me this story when I was talking in the classroom specifically about the difference between shamelessness and nakedness without shame. And she said, oh, that helps me understand my experience. She was an art student and she was in a figure drawing class. And a woman comes into the studio and drops her robe before the students. Then the, the model realized that the curtains had not been pulled on a big window that looked out at a courtyard at this university campus. And when she realized her nakedness was being exposed to an unknown audience, she immediately put her robe back on. And this student for years had been wondering, why did she drop her robe with us, but then put it back on when she realized her nakedness was exposed to others? The fact that she put her robe back on when her nakedness was exposed to an unknown audience demonstrates that when she dropped her robe for the students, she was not behaving shamelessly. What's the difference? Nakedness without shame is an experience of nakedness in which I trust the viewer to uphold my dignity and worth, right? So that model in the presence of these art students had good reason to believe these students know how to honor my nakedness without treating me like, a, like an object or a thing. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't know that the people outside the studio know how to see her that way. Hmm. So shame in a positive sense, right? Shame is not merely a negative word. Shame also has a positive manifestation where we feel our dignity is threatened in being naked. So we cover the body, not because we think the body is shameful, not because we think the body is bad, but because we have a right intuition about our own dignity. And we feel that dignity is threatened by the way someone else is going to look at my nakedness and treat me as something less than my true dignity. We cover our body in that situation to protect its goodness and dignity. But shameless nudity is one of exposing your nakedness to those who you know will treat you as something less than what you're worth, but you don't care. You, you some for some reason, you even may enjoy it or take some perverse delight in being treated as an object for someone else's use. Uh, so shameless nudity, that that couple, you, you gave the example of somebody fornicating in a restaurant and calling it art or something, that is shameless nudity. You are exposing yourself to an audience who's going to objectify you and treat what you're doing as less than the dignity it demands, right? So you should feel, a woman posing in pornography should feel a need to protect her own worth. 
Hmm. When she does not feel that need to protect her worth, she is behaving shamelessly. When she is naked in an environment where she knows her worth will be rightly upheld, she's tasting something this something of nakedness without shame. Hmm. Are you following that distinction, Mark? Yeah, I'm following it. But then I guess the, the argument then is that you you have to like uh like your ability to be okay naked is dependent upon what other people are doing around you in their own minds. And then that, like, I can see people having issue with that. Okay. So, so let me go back to the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo's intentions were, were appropriate and good, right? Mm -hmm. His goal in portraying the naked body in the Sistine Chapel his intention was to reveal the true dignity of the human person. If somebody comes into the Sistine Chapel with a pornographic mindset, the solution is not to say Michelangelo messed with this guy. Yeah. It's not Michelangelo's problem. It's that guy's problem. Right. right? He shouldn't be going into the Sistine Chapel and projecting his own pornographic vision onto Michelangelo's sacred art. Right. So it does create this. What John Paul II calls, he says, we have to be concerned not only in the, with the ethos of the portrayal of the body, but what is also involved is the ethos of the person viewing it. Right. And we can't know for sure what that's going to be. And so we, we do take a risk. Uh, this woman, whatever she thinks of what she may be doing on her Instagram, she's putting herself out in such a way that men are going to treat her as an object for their selfish lustful indulgence she's not she's not helping these men to see her true dignity and worth she's actually fostering the problem she's pouring gasoline on the fire that needs to be extinguished in order for that sacred holy fire to be inflamed right and that's a problem that's yeah. a problem yeah yeah, that's that's pretty much where I where I ended up standing on it is like it's it, it's more of like you have to understand the context of what you're doing and you have to ultimately have the goodwill of your viewer in mind. Yes. And I think that's that's probably the biggest one where it's like who's who's um best interest are you really trying to serve? It's like, okay, yeah. well, yeah, you doing this it certainly serves your interest. You're building a following, making money doing it, that sort of thing. Um is it serving your audience's interest? That's where I, I think it's, you know, far less likely to be the case. Yeah, it's far less likely. And and also, she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know her true worth and dignity. And so we can have compassion, right? She doesn't know who she is. She needs she needs to be she needs to discover her true worth and dignity. If she knew her true worth and dignity, she would not be exposing herself to being degraded in this way. Yeah. And it's not that her body is degrading or shameful in itself, but the way she is portraying her body, she's doing it in such a way that is going to lead to men degrading her body. So she needs to know her worth and dignity, and she needs to have maybe a little education in, in male psychology and how men are wired. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that could... <laughs> That could yeah. go a long way in helping her to realize she's exposing herself to abuse. Yes, I agree. Yeah, and that, that seems to be the big issue, and that's one of the big things that I talked about is, like, women who advocate for 
extremely, you know, revealing stuff is they, they are either, I, I think they're just being, they're lying to themselves by pretending like they don't know how men work or they are just ignorant and they need to understand. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's certain biological realities and visual nature of the male sexuality that are, it's troublesome to deal with as a man and why not make it easier on your brothers and sisters out there? But anyway, um, do you have time for one more question or do you got to get, get one? Okay. We're good. So I do have to leave in, uh, I have another call in eight minutes. Oh, eight minutes. Okay. Yeah. So, all right, let's see if we can do the, the, the fast version of this. All right. Okay. Is there any place outside of the bedroom where gender really matters? So like, let me pitch you an example. So I would say, you know, theologically, we I've heard you talk about like why there can't be female priests and that's super interesting. Um, I would highly recommend people to, to check that out. But what about like in the married life? Like for say you got a husband and a wife, the, they both are fo focused on loving one another and loving their children properly, but they have a disagreement. Okay. And someone like someone's got to like, there has to be a decision made and the man says, well, you know, I'm supposed to be the head of the family as a man. My, my word is final. And the woman, you know, she says, that's not fair. That's not like equality. Uh, that's not like what God wants. Does the man have a point or no? I would say they both have a point. Um, and, and I think we're, we're, we're entering a, you know, can of worms here that maybe we can't do, I mean, we can't do justice to not maybe we can't okay. do justice to it in just a few minutes. Fair enough. But the sexual difference doesn't only matter in sexual intercourse. That's its kind of consummate expression, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm always a man, right? And a woman is always a woman. And society, it's not an exaggeration to say truly civilized societies, uh, truly civilized civilizations, that's redundant, right? That's what civilization means, it's civilized. But civilization is organized around the sexual difference, right? Let's let's press into that word organized, right? Look at the word organ. Men and women are literally organized for each other, meaning we have the sexual organs that allow us to become one functioning organism. Hmm. Right? Everything in my body is complete in all of its functions, except my genital function. <laughs> it's not complete in itself. It can only serve its function with a woman who has complementary genital organs that allow our organs to come together in one functioning organism. That's interesting, right? yeah. And society, any society that survives, is organized around this sexual reality. The goal of what we're going through in this modern experiment is to deconstruct the sexual difference, which leads to total chaos, total lack of organization, right? Now there have been exaggerations in the past of that sexual difference. Sure. In all kinds of fields, the difference has been exaggerated to the point that it almost always favored men and in many ways demeaned or belittled women. 
And women are right in the 20th century to stand up and say, hey, that's not fair. There's nothing about my femininity that says I can't be a doctor, I can't be a lawyer, I can't be president of the United States, I can't be an astronaut. What what does my the fact that I have a womb and ovaries versus testicles and sperm, what does that bear on the reality of my being president? Well, it, it might bear in that you might get pregnant while you're president, and that could bear on it. But you know, by and large, a woman can do these things. Nonetheless, a woman will never be able to be a father, and a man will never be able to be a mother. There are differences right here that are essential for the survival of the human race, for the origin of new life, and for the organization of how human beings live together. This is essential, and there are ramifications there because we know that the sexual difference leads to that sexual reality which is why we have prisons for men and prisons for women. And why when a man claims to be a woman and is put in a women's prison, he's raping the women in the women's prison and women are getting pregnant. This is disorganization. Right. This is a failure to understand the proper organization of society based on the sexual difference, right? There's a reason we have bathrooms in schools for boys and bathrooms in schools for girls, right? All unjust discrimination should be weeded out. Unjust discrimination. But there is just discrimination, right? Just discrimination is just when the difference, that which we are distinguishing, that's which we are discriminating, actually has a bearing on the reality being considered. For example, it is unjust discrimination for the state to say blind people cannot vote. What does blindness have to do with voting? Right. Right. That's unjust discrimination. But it is just discrimination for the state to refuse to issue driver's licenses to blind people. Sure. Because seeing is a requirement of driving, right? It is unjust discrimination to say uh, a woman cannot go into the state capital. Why? What does that have to do with anything? But it is just discrimination to say a woman cannot go into the men's locker room or the men's bathroom at the state capital. Because the difference matters in these situations, right? Yep. So that's kind of a roundabout way of saying the sexual difference has ramifications in the whole organization of society, right? And in the case of a married man who wants to assert some headship, if he's going to do so, he must be certain to be following Christ, who says that those who have authority in the secular world use their authority to dominate and control other people. But it must not be so with you, he says. You must use your authority to serve others, to lay down your life for others. So the whole analogy here of Christ being the head of the church and the husband being head of the family only works. Right. Only leads to true organization of the family if the man is redirecting that energy in service of his wife and his children 
not in a way that dominates or controls them to benefit himself. So it is biblically accurate to say that if he's doing that, he does have the right then to make the final say? Not with, not in a tyrannical way, not in a way that discounts the, the perspective of the woman, not in a way that mows her over, only in a such a way that her perspective is factored in to all that's being considered mm-hmm. and is given its due place. Sure. And, and, but that is a very, very delicate line to walk and a very difficult one to walk. And more times than not, men will turn to these biblical passages to justify their own crap. Well, yes, but I actually see the reverse side in our like in my work where it's like men are trying to find their voice in a hyper-feminized True. society. Yes, and I'm 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 a hundred percent there in saying we must find a way as men to step up and walk into our proper masculine authority, what men can do that women can't do, and exercise that in genuine ways. But the only way to do that, if I can come back to our a previous theme, the only way to do that is through allowing our hearts to be truly circumcised, truly exposed, truly vulnerable, truly ready to bleed for the good of others. That's authentic masculinity properly lived. And there is an authority to it that leads to the good of the family, society, uh, the whole of civilization and men who we flip flop between being emasculated on the one hand and then that that domineering out of balance masculinity on the other. We got to find that middle path. Right. Perfect. That's a great way to to hit uh, the end of this. I really appreciate your time. Um, is there what's the best place for people to, to follow your work and to support what you do? Thank you for asking. Yeah, my wife and I have a podcast you might want to check out called Ask Christopher West. It's very good. Uh, my my listen- wife is obsessed with it. She listens to it all oh, the time. Great. I like it. Yeah, too. wherever you find podcasts, you can find that. Uh, and the website of my work and ministry is theologyofthebody.com. Uh, check out our YouTube channel. Um, you can just type Christopher West into YouTube and get to the Theology of the Body Institute YouTube channel. That's how you'll find what we're doing. Awesome. And you got a new book too, out, out too, right? Like- uh, a book that um, I contributed to. I'm not okay. the main author of it, but the book is called God is Beauty. Hmm. And it's it's all about the revelation of divine transcendent reality in the created world. So if you want to check that out, you can go to theologythebody.com and click on our store. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christopher. There's been a, a great conversation. Hope to have you back here because uh, we got a lot more we could talk about. But uh, I, I look forward to it, Mark. You're doing right. great work. Keep doing it. Thank you.